So thanks for joining me for this episode of Thrive, your agency resource. Today, we're talking about anti-racism. And my guest is Ben Gutman. He's the co-founder of Digital Natives Group. He's also an adjunct lecturer at Baruch College and an active community member uh, with Long Island City and Queens Economic Empowerment and Development Groups. Ben, I am so grateful to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Kelly. Looking forward to it. So before we get started, um, I want to say a few things. I want to say that this was a very conscious decision um, to have this conversation between two white people. I feel strongly that inviting um, a black or brown person into a forum to have a discussion about racism is a little short-sighted because racism is a white issue. It's been a white issue for over 450 years. And um, something interesting that happened in finding a guest for this show, my naivete left me a little bit surprised as to how many other white men declined having this conversation. They declined because they were uncomfortable. They declined because they said that they felt ill-prepared, that they didn't know what to say. They feared saying the wrong thing. Um, I get it. But my hope is that today's episode can be a small model for change in that regard. We are certainly going to say the wrong things. Mm -hmm. um, we are not going to use the proper terminology every time. But my stance is that silence, not having a conversation about racism, oppression, privilege, inequality, or imbalance of power, that's a lot worse than making any mistakes that are gonna happen in this discussion. So um, to everyone who's listening, I thank you for listening and I encourage you to start talking more openly, more candidly with your friends, your family members, your colleagues. Commit to looking at your own biases and then take some small action in the right direction, um, especially as a creative leader. There's no more important role that you have uh, in this moment and each day for the rest of your lives than this. So with that, um, let's, uh, let's dive into it. Um, if it's okay with you, I think uh, it's, a, it's a great place to start by level setting what racism is and what it is not. So um, yeah, let's talk about a little bit of that um, racism versus bigotry versus discrimination, prejudice. You know, it's defined in a lot of different ways. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, what you said before, uh, just echoing that, you talk about people who were not interested because they would be ill-prepared or saying the wrong thing or don't know what to say. I, I am as imperfect as anybody else and I am going to say the wrong thing and am ill-prepared and don't know what to say. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, 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 an incredible, it's an incredible moment. We were talking before uh, the podcast about um, how this doesn't, you know, this doesn't all happen unless this all happens. Um, you know, we don't have this rising consciousness and reaction uh, to the events with uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor if we didn't have what happened with Amy Cooper and Chris Cooper, if we didn't have what happened to Maude Arbery before that, and if you didn't have 40 million people unemployed and people who don't have to go to work the next day necessarily. So you don't have this type of, um, this type of consciousness without that. Uh, and you know, we were also talking about 
being able to um, both participate over the past few days in some of these uh, some of these actions that were happening. Uh, and it's disheartening that it had to happen, but it's heartening that it did happen in some of those uh, those reactions. Um, in terms of defining what racism is, I, I don't quite know, and I I, I don't know. Uh, there's there's a lot of definitions of it. I'm sure that I have been guilty at some point in my past of implicit racism or, or implicit bias at some point, um, and um, you know that's that's uh, that's a struggle. Yeah, yeah. I remember sitting in my um, it was a sophomore social studies class in high school, and the social studies teacher was pretty progressive. He really pushed us and. Um, you know, we were, whatever the curriculum was, we were talking. And I remember he started off this one particular class and he said, raise your hand if you're racist. And everyone, you know, pretty diverse school, but everyone looked around. Nobody's hand went up except for Jose, who was sitting right in front of me. Jose's hand shot up and I was like, I was sitting right behind him. And I remember thinking, oh my God, Jose is a racist. <laughs> and the teacher made, illustrated this beautiful point. He was like, Jose, for the rest of the term, for the rest of the, the semester, whatever it was, um, you will get straight A's or whatever it is, because you're the most honest person in this class. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I remember it changing my perception. And we went into an, you know, the entire curriculum about racism and civil rights and everything. Um, I think at this point, my understanding of racism is that it's a white issue because of this self-perceived superiority um, because of power and because of self-ascribed privilege. Those are the three things that I can, I can sort of have as like an underpinning as my understanding of racism. I don't know how that resonates with you. Yeah, I, I, you know, I like what you, just, uh, what you just said in terms of, you know, it, it's, it's a structure. It's not somebody going out there and saying, you know, this word, that word, or the other word. It's about, being you know, a system that is so fundamentally built upon, you know, economically, you know, government-wise, socially, upon uh, a foundation of, of that inequity, of that inequality. Um, I, I, you know, am a straight white guy, and I'm Jewish, but that's, that's a whole other can of worms that's not quite the same thing in any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I walk down the street, and my life is so much easier, and to, then every you know, than everybody that, that doesn't check all those same boxes. Right. I don't have to face the same, the same uh, uh, biases when I'm talking with a client. I don't have to, you know, people don't run away from me, you know, or, or you know, look over their shoulder when I'm, you know, uh, you know, behind them on the street at night. All these things that I, it is just easier for me. It's just easier for me. And, um, uh, and, and part of the, the challenge is for people to acknowledge that, is that to say, I, I have had benefits. I have had as many benefits as, as somebody can have. Um, and that doesn't, um, that, that, that's, uh, that, that's a challenge um, to, to stomach a lot of times for a lot of people. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, and, and similar to you saying, you know, you're, you're straight and white and Jewish. I mean, I'm white and gay and a woman right? So I have a couple of boxes, quote unquote, checked against me, but, but I still have the exact same experience that you have, right? I have that privilege. I don't have to worry about driving across the country, um, worrying about what towns I can and cannot stop in, right? For the most part. Um, 
yeah, there are so many things that we just take as the normal because you nor I will ever have any idea what it's like to be brown or black in America. We will not ever have those experiences. So I feel like, you know, this past week was a really great um, entrance into like listening, like really hearing, but then really listening, listening to black voices, listening and giving um, platform and, and just the credit where credit's due. I mean, listening, educating ourselves, reading, whatever we needed to do, right? Because it's not, it's not the job of black or brown people to educate white people on racism. I feel pretty strongly about that, which is why you're here. And it's not, you know, someone who's black or brown. Um, I don't know. I think it goes, it, it sort of dovetails into the conversation or the question of why is it so uncomfortable? Why did I have to go through five or six or seven people to find someone who is willing to have this conversation? Why do you think racism is such a difficult conversation for white people? So... I grew up in a town on Long Island that was 98% white. Um, uh, there, you know, that was, it was literally one of the most segregated places um, you know, in the entire country. Uh, and then I move, I move to the city and I go to CUNY, I go to Baruch College where I now teach, I'll talk about some about that stuff later, um, which at different points was named the most diverse school in the entire country. And so it's, there's an incredible culture shock going from such a bubble, uh, such a, uh, a cocooned environment, mm -hmm. uh, like where I grew up in Smithtown, to, you know, to being at Baruch and, and meeting people from places I've never even heard of, you know, in, in, my, in my 17 years or 18 years up to that point. Um, and I, I, one thing that's been kind of stewing a little bit in my mind is that a lot of people who, when they, when, especially when they are in a segregated environment, they, a lot of white people who don't have any sort of um, real interaction with, with any sort of diverse communities. Um, I know I was taught this, we're colorblind. You're colorblind. I don't see color. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, well, I don't know. You know. I didn't see that person's black or brown or whatever. And, and you know, that's, that's just silly. That's it's a fallacy. Yeah. It's a fallacy. Um, and, and the other thing that comes to mind is the idea of a, of a melting pot, which is, which is great in some ways, but uh, I, one of the, the, the best classes I took while at that school was taught by Mario Cuomo, the former governor of New York State. And he gave a little, he gave a talk about, it's the mosaic of New York. It's the mosaic of America. It's not the melting pot. It's not about blending everything together and getting rid of the differences and getting rid of, you know, the individuality, but it's about how each together uh, produces a beautiful whole. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, instead of saying, I don't see color, acknowledging that there is color, acknowledging that there is institutional racism, that there's benefits you get to everything else we've been talking about. Um, that's, that is not only going to be you know, anti-racist in this regard, but it's ultimately going to lead to a, you know, a better end outcome in terms of the celebration of the diversity of, of, of who we are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, the conversation is difficult or uncomfortable for people, like we said at the top of the show, because there's this idea that like, I don't, I don't know what to say. Um, I fear from a reputation standpoint, if someone's going to look at me differently, I don't feel prepared for it. But I think that there's conscious and unconscious privilege, guilt, and shame mm -hmm. for a lot of white people who are like, you know, our ancestors had slaves. And now we're in this, this you know, 450 years later of a situation where 
maybe I didn't directly participate in that, but the world that I live in certainly feels very imbalanced, right? Um, so I think it's that. And then I think that there's confusion between learned biases, right? And the desire that most of us have, I, I assume or, or believe that most people are good at the core. So there's like the confusion between these learned biases and the desire to love and treat all people equally. And like you said, there's, there is that interesting conversation about not being a melting pot, really leaning into that mosaic. We're not trying to, to blend together. I had this conversation. Um, I started a project called um, Spiritual Shadow Boxing, which is just like a little video series that we've been doing. And I recently had um, an episode recorded um, with a reverend. And he, somebody said, how do you reconcile the difference between like oneness, you know, we're, we're all one, and like the reality of the fact that we're not all one. And he said, well, I do believe that we are one, but I do not believe that we are the same. And that's okay. The, the issue comes in where there's the imbalance of that power. And I think that's what we need to look at. That's what we need to talk about recognizing that there is that imbalance of power and that there needs to be some type of redistribution, right? I mean, that's what inherently what racism is all about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that's a really interesting way of, of, um, of putting it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you mentioned the, the idea of redistribution or, or um, you know, one thing that's, yeah, that's come uh, up in, different um, kind of policy circles and talk about racial equity in, in the past has been the idea of reparations, right? What do you do in terms of that? And that's obviously, you know, the, you talk about thorny subjects that may be the thorniest subject of all of them. For sure. um, but I mean, there's been a lot of interesting discussion about, is it justified? And, you know, maybe it is, maybe it is something that makes sense. Maybe it's worth, it's worth studying. It's worth um, looking at, um, you know, and looking at, you know, other policy things that, that ends up being, you know, well, I, I know I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but in terms of how we individually, you know, go about, um, uh, I guess, act, acting on these things. Yeah. You mentioned before I'm involved with several uh, different economic development or economic uh, uh, or civic organizations here in Queens, the Community Board, different, you know, the Queens Economic Development Corporation. Um, that That's the way personally, which I, you know, begin to activate on, on a lot of those things. And... Um, uh, you know, there's been talks now about uh, defunding the NYPD and how do we how do we do something like that? How do you repeal 50A here in New York State? Um, things that weren't discussed a month ago. Right. You know, we, you know, on, I'm on the, uh, the community board. It's a long kind of process to explain what they are necessarily, but we put budget priorities in for for our community every year, and then they get commented on by the mayor's office or anything. Um, and we got a letter back with the commentary on the most recent one, and it said. Um, you know, we, we didn't, I didn't remember this, but six months ago or eight months ago, we all voted on saying new precinct for the you know, local police precinct, the local NYPD uh, precinct uh, here uh, in Long Island City. And we said, well, you know, we, we had our most recent meeting about a week ago and we said, you know, it was, it was brought up without necessarily any uh, objection, which I'm surprised from, from a group like that, uh, that we should maybe de-emphasize this. This shouldn't be what we're doing. So it's a ma right. it's amazing kind of sea change. We passed a, a, a referendum in favor of Black Lives Matter and, and you know, and all the uh, 
uh, movements associated, we, we passed that unanimously. Again, when I joined that organization five years ago, you know, it, I couldn't have imagined something like that being, being supported. Right. Um, and so these, these policy um, ideas are, are getting more traction, you know, kind of by the hour almost, uh, yeah. which, which is truly incredible. Yeah, absolutely. So then shifting, you know, we, we started off talking about racism. What do we mean by anti-racism? Because I think that there's a lot of confusion about that term. Um, I, I came across a definition of it. Um, I'd love to hear, you know, from you if, if you want to talk about that first, and then I can share the, the definition that I came across that I really, that resonated um, more so with me, but I can let you talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I grieve the thing that you're going to read because I know we talked about that before. But the um, what we've been talking about largely, I think, has been about anti-racism. Right? It's about you know, it's not enough to just say, "Well, I'm I'm not racist. I don't say these things. I don't support you know that organization X or Y." Um, but it's about how do I proactively deconstruct uh, or and work to make a more equitable society? Yeah. Um, so you can't be passive in it. You have to be active in it. How can you? Uh, how can you do it with you know your your words, your thoughts, and what's important your actions about how to how to do that? And your wallet, and your wallet. You know, yeah. if you have the capacity and your wallet. Um, so yeah. So this definition that I came across: um, anti-racism is the active process of identifying and eliminating racism by changing systems, organizational structures, policies, practices, and attitudes, so that power is redistributed and shared equitably. I really love that uh, definition. I think it's the strongest one. I think it covers the gamut of what it actually means. Um, and I think for me, the, the, the pivotal and most poignant word in there is active process, because it's not something that you do for a week. It's not something that you do passively. So I think, you know, there's definitely alignment there and, and getting that definition out there and having people understand more um, about what it actually means, because people think, well, I'm not racist, I'm anti-racist. And then they take a passive, uh, a passive stance. So you can't have both. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. That's a great way. That's a great way to. Uh, to yeah, yeah. So um, talk a little bit more about the civic volunteer experience, because I think that that can actually help people in in understanding as we sort of transition the, the conversation from um, not being passive to taking action. We talked a little bit about, you know, yes, maybe donating to anti racist causes, community causes in your in your local causes in your local community that would have the greatest impact. Um, educating yourself, listening. Yes, we can do all of these things, but from the civic standpoint, what are some of the ways in which um, you think that we can be supportive allies um, from a servant leadership perspective? Yeah. So, you know, as you just outlined, everybody has their own preferences and their own comfort level of doing different things. And if that just means I'm going to support, you know, black owned business versus, versus uh, somebody else, that's one way of doing it. If it's volunteerism, if it is, um, you know, donations or fundraising, if it's hosting talks with your friends and family and, and, and doing that. And I have, I know people that do all of those things and to varying degrees, I participate in all of those things. Um, for me personally, and for anybody that's interested, um, I uh, have been a big advocate for this issue and for other, and for other issues uh, 
of being involved in the local political process and local governing process. Um, people pay a lot of attention to who's president. They pay a lot of attention maybe to who's the sen who, who controls the Senate or the House, and those are all very important. But when you look at what actually matters in your day-to-day -day life, your local and state government is actually probably about 10 times more influential on what happens when you walk out the door today. Uh, it talks about, you know, like your school, your school board, and, and who's, you know, your ch chancellor or superintendent of your schools, um, the, and what the curriculum is that, that flows from that. Um, the, and the police department, as we've been talking about a little bit, and when you look at city budgets for police departments around the country, there's been a lot of discussion where a lot of cities are just police departments with some poorly funded social programs on the side. Um, it, it's, you know, it, it's 70%, 60% of, of the budget of a lot of cities in this country is the mm -hmm. police department. And there's almost nothing for housing and education and civil rights and social justice, everything else that goes along with that. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I know people listening to this may be, you know, in, in all across the country or the world. Um, and so there's going to be varying ways which you can get involved. Um, at the very least, you should register to vote if you're eligible to, and you should vote in every election because uh, every four years the president's elected, that's great. Uh, but talk about New York City, every two years is a legislative election. Uh, on, the odd, on those odd years, there's the state, you know, state uh, Y elections for governor and comptroller and everything else. Um, the uh, local elections in New York City are every four years, but on the odd number of years in terms of, uh, you know, 2021 is going to be the next election for that. Um, and, you know, if the people that show up to those have a disproportionate voice than the ones that show up just every four years, because a lot less people vote in those elections. Um, and so if you're sitting those out, you're saying, whatever, as long as, you know, Trump isn't president, I'm fine or whatever, that, that's not going to be enough. You have to make sure that the local leadership uh, is somebody you know, that, that, that actually represents uh, your values. And then beyond that, you have to hold them accountable. You have to be able to call and write into them. You have to be able to see them at their town halls. You have to be able to, if you're in a place like New York City, go to your community board meetings, join your community boards. These low level things, they can be very long, kind of parks and recce, you know, type meetings. Yeah, yeah. But they are, those are, the, those are the places, those are the, the rooms where things begin to actually inch forward in terms of policy. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it could be those things. Uh, I think all of those, everything that you just said, it was, is really important. Uh, again, I share your view that it, there are, I've said this a couple times, uh, recently, there are like 27 things that you could do every single day, like pick one or two. I think it's about the fact that this is not a sprint. This is not like, how do I do something super impactful in one or two weeks? And then like, I'm good. Like, I'm just, I'm a good person and I'm anti-racist. No, this whole thing is about the marathon. If this is for the rest of your life. And my hope, um, I, it might seem utopian, but I hope it's not. My hope is that if each one of us committed to do just one or two things, whether it was with our wallet or volunteerism or voting or uh, having conversations, educating ourselves, listening to audiobooks like White Fragility to like educate ourselves, whatever you're doing, if you could do one or two things every single day consciously to the point where it then becomes unconscious at some point, it just becomes organic, it just becomes how you exist in the world, that's when this gr giant grinding wheel starts to actually move. Yeah. Um, I feel pretty strongly about that. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's, this system has been built for 400 years. 
if not longer, it's not going to be unraveled in two weeks. Or days or whatever <laughs> right. it it's not going to. And it's so foundational to our economy, to our culture, to our government, to our, to our the way we even interact with each other, that it's impossible to say there's no one solution, right? If you right. look at something, you know, I remember, it, but you know, the protests for um, the March for Our Lives, you know, not too long ago. Um, there, you know, as improbable as it may be, there is a one solution for some of that. You ban guns, you know, like that, that's an option for that. If there is a one solution for, you know, global warming in a way, again, however impractical, stop using fossil fuels. There's no one solution for this. There's no one thing where there's one law that's going to get passed. There's one, you know, company that's going to change a policy or one person that's going to get fired or voted out that's going to change this. And it's about every single day in every single way making a little bit of change, a little bit of progress on this. Um, and, you know, and there's a million different ways to do that. As you yeah, said. yeah. And, and I think it's important to say choosing the ways in which you have the capacity to do it or the ways in which um you know that it's not going to be that, that it'll just be easier for you right so if you are a wealthy person and the way in which you can participate is to um you know donate to anti-racist causes good fine that's fine that's the one thing that you did today um that's fine and there's no i don't think that there's um any judgment about that it's just whatever you can do that's sustained Right, because like you said, this is not this. None of this is a magic bullet, you know. No. It's it takes all of us, right? Yeah. Um. So, one of the things I wanted to sort of wrap up with um, in this conversation is that you know we're talking to creative leaders who run marketing and advertising agencies. Um. I feel pretty strongly. Also, apparently, I have a lot of strong feelings today. <laughs> um. I feel pretty strongly that um because of the work that we do, we have a responsibility. And the work that we do impacts brands, it impacts the communications and the messaging that is distributed, conveyed to the masses. Um, that's a lot of weight on, on the shoulders of creative leaders, right? So uh, there was something like a, Forbes just came out with an article a few hours ago called, How Can Leadership Break Down Racism and Make Changes Now? Um, my question is, how can we as creative leaders start to create anti-racist agencies in order to contribute to a more equitable society? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, I'll tell you what we've done or what we're going to do, and it won't be enough and it will never be enough. Um, we, uh, my, my partners at Digital Natives are also other white guys. And we're conscious of the fact that there's biases that come with that. As we've tried to build our team over the years, we try to get, you know, integrate more diverse perspective for many reasons. And one of them is also, it's good for business. It's good. It's better for as morally right as it is. For, for outcomes. Not enough for you. Yeah. If that's not enough for some reason, um, uh, running an anti-racist company is going to be better for business because um, marketing is about a connection to a cult, to the culture. And you know, if you're only representing one small segment of it, you're only paying attention to one small segment of it, you're not going to do a good job in your creative pursuits. Um, we've been doing, you know, we've been having regular conversations with the team here. We've given people time off to do activism. We've given them, uh, we have a new benefit where we're matching stuff. We're doing uh, monthly recurring donations to nonprofits of their choice. Um, and we're, you know, continuing 
you know, in every way we can to, to, you know, to, to push, to push the envelope a little bit in that. Um, I think that, you know, those are all things which somebody can do. There's plenty more somebody can do it beyond, you know, beyond your own work stuff. And I want to squeeze in a little bit about, you know, where, where I, I, I teach at Baruch college. I've been doing that for, for about six years and a couple of years ago, I added a lesson to the syllabus that was marketing ethics. And I go over a whole bunch of things, which is, is marketing good or bad? Is what we do good or bad? Um, you know, stuff like tobacco and sugary foods and all that stuff is part of it, but also we talk about race. And I mentioned before, Baruch's a very diverse school and, and, I've, um, and every time that I bring this uh, segment of the present of the lecture up, I have a screenshot of that infamous H&M advertisement or, or, or photo shoot with like the, the 10-year-old black boy with the green sweatshirt that says, coolest monkey in the jungle. Mm -hmm. And every time I pull that up, everybody in the class winces and goes, oh my God. And I bring that up because I know, and you know, most of our listeners know, there were a hundred people involved in that. There were a hundred people either on, the, on set, the photographer, the editors, the, the chaperones, the, um, the people who, who were editing the photos, the people who were posting them on the website, not to mention the people that ran the campaign and that right. uh, were, were up top. And the fact is, all of them either didn't say anything because they didn't realize something like this was wrong, or they were too afraid to say anything because they didn't want to rock the boat. Yeah, my bet, is, my bet is on the latter. Yeah. And, and like maybe a 50-50 split, I don't know. Oh yeah, and if you are not in the room, if you don't have people in the room that can, that can either are, are allies that, can, that are going to be able to stand up and say something, or the, the, the representative uh, cross-section of, of society itself in there, you're gonna make those mistakes. It's bad for business and it's bad morally for this. And that's what we end up getting to is the ultimate lesson of that class is you should do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Right. That should be enough. Um, but if for some reason that's not enough, there's plenty of other reasons to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, making, making sure that you have, um, that, that in each way, in each day, you do a little bit to be able to move the needle and acknowledge your own, you know, benefits and failings, which I'm sure I have had plenty of failings in this conversation. Even um, it, it, that that's going to be, um, you know, that's going to be what we can do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think sort of holding yourselves accountable um, and really putting that commitment out there. Um, you and I both know um, Michael Ventura and his organization Sub Rosa. Um, they actually just put an email out yesterday, uh, which I want to share a little bit of because I thought it was a great example of commitment on the part of a creative agency um, to being anti-racist. And, and I saw the email come in. I forwarded it to you. Um, we believe in anti-racism. It's hard to believe that despite how much we thought our organization stood for anti-racism a few short weeks ago, the events of the past week have shown us, as it has many companies, how much further we all need to go. Like many this past week, the people at Subrosa have been listening to and learning from black leaders, sharing their messages and interrogating the privilege many of us have benefited from in our careers and throughout our lives. We are an organization built on the foundation of empathy and yet, even with the tools, resources and practices designed to elicit true understanding on this topic, we have fallen short of what needs to be done, we will do better. And then it goes on for another uh, half a page or so. 
um, to talk about what they're committed to, what they're implementing at the organization. I would love to see more emails like this coming from creative agencies and then, you know, more discussions around it, um, maybe even having some of this information on their websites and for the long term, updating that, showing the progress they've made, showing what action steps they've taken each month or each quarter or whatever it is. Um, I think this is, it's just what's needed. Yep. And I just want to add one thing too. Yeah. Don't work with jerks. <laughs> don't work with jerks. Don't, you don't have to work for everybody that walks in the door. You don't have to seek out business that is going, that is actively making the world worse, be it with racism uh, or be it with the environment or be it with gun violence or whatever it is. We have turned down business every single year we've been in business because it didn't align with our ethics. Mm. Um, and you know, it's a tough, it's a tough nut to swallow sometimes when you got to meet payroll, but you, you only have so much time on this earth. You only have so much creative energy when you're here and you should not use that to further the, the pursuits of those who are not trying to make this a better place. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Ben, thank you so much for having this discussion with me. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Kelly. This episode has been brought to you by Workamajig, the number one creative agency management software. Show notes at thrive.workamajig.com. Find out how your creative agency can become more productive and more profitable. Schedule your demo at thrive.workamajig.com.